John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 123 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective. Because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. So the script writers for 2020, of course, had... A lot of plot twists in mind when they started this saga. And we saw another one just a few days ago. Shit is getting real now, folks, because Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, passed away at the age of 87, opening up a Supreme Court position right before the election. I mean, you literally couldn't write this stuff. Hollywood would not possibly have believed everything that's going to happen and has already happened in 2020 in a presidential election year. This was already going to be maybe our most contentious presidential election ever. And now, obviously, we're in the midst of of a pandemic, at least the perception of a major pandemic. Uh, I believe that that is mostly over with at this point and fading uh, slowly but surely. But the reality is life has completely changed this year. Uh, This election was always going to be contentious. The stakes have only risen because of the pandemic and everything surrounding it. And now on top of all that, literally at the either the best or the worst possible moment, depending on your political perspective, you have a very liberal Supreme Court justice pass away. I mean, you just couldn't write this. You really couldn't write this if you tried. And I sense that this is not the last plot twist. 
it, it feels very much like we are headed for the Armageddon scenario. I'll get to, to that later on when we talk about the politics of all this and, and where the election currently stands, because there's some interesting things happening there. But as far as the Ruth Bader Ginsburg death and the opening on the Supreme Court that it creates, the first thing I'll say is, you know, from a big picture perspective, this really exposes, regardless of your political persuasion, that we ought to have a retirement age for Supreme Court justices. I mean, if you're somebody who is on the left, you ought to be really irritated at Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not having retired when Barack Obama was president. Because I mean, if she had done that, her seat would have gone clearly, uh, especially depending on when she did it, uh, to a, a liberal on the court, maybe not an extreme liberal, because Republicans, depending on when that would have happened, would have had some theoretical power to to prevent that, but not that much. Uh, but the reality is she decided to wait. And let's be clear, a large part of that, and this has nothing to do with her in particular, this is just the nature of people in this position, they have massive egos. And they don't want to give that up, because if they give that up, and, and, and kudos to Justice Kennedy, Right. By the way, remember, Justice Kennedy retired, you know, you know, when Trump was president, allowing for a conservative, more conservative than him, even probably to be put on the Supreme Court. Well, Ginsburg didn't make that choice. And then it was too late. Maybe she never anticipated that Trump was going to win. Who knows? But the reality is that her death has now made it a real possibility that her very leftist seat is going to be replaced by someone who is a conservative. Now, when this first happened, I knew, obviously, this was going to create a massive firestorm, a complete freakout on the left. People were going to go absolutely bananas uh, because of the incredibly unfortunate timing for them. I mean, if you're, if you're on the left, you believe Trump's going to lose. You're a few months away from Joe Biden and likely, uh, very likely, a Democratic Senate where you can nominate anybody you want you can nominate the far-left crackpot of your dreams, and there's nothing Republicans can do about it. If she lives till, till you know, January, uh, then you're, you're golden. But she dies in late September, and now you're pretty much screwed. And I have to say, I, my first reaction to this was probably inaccurate because I thought, wait a minute, there's no way, not no way, but it's going to be very, very difficult for Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to pull this off in an incredibly short period of time. I mean, I'm thinking about this going, well, wait a minute. First of all, we're less than two months from an election, and the Senate is supposed to go out of session on October 9th. Now, I know they can change that, and the Republicans control Senate, the Senate so that I'm sure they will, but we're talking about an incredibly short amount of time here to name and vet and go through the process, which is usually rather arduous, and it should be arduous, to determine whether or not someone is qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. We just went through this a couple of years ago with Brett Kavanaugh, and it was World War III. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, obviously the sexual assault claim against him, which I believe to be bullshit, uh, elongated that and created far more controversy than there would have been otherwise. But the reality is, this would be, if they pull this off before the election, this would be the quickest Supreme Court 
turnaround, uh, certainly of my uh, lifetime that I can remember in the modern history uh, of the country, maybe even longer than that. And let's be clear, my first reaction was, okay, you're going to lose all the soft Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and you're not going to have enough votes to be able to do this before an election. That was my thought that, okay, there's got to be at least four or five defections among Republicans who just don't want to do this on the premise of it's too close to an election and this is too fast, that we're not giving enough credibility to the process. We have to protect the process, that 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 would be the excuse that they would use. And at first, it looked like I was going to be right about that because Susan Collins, who's running for re-election, immediately said she's out. Lisa Murkowski said she's out. And then Mitt Romney, God bless Mitt Romney, the, the guy who I predicted and hoped would be the lone holdout on impeachment and would vote to convict uh, Donald Trump uh, in the impeachment trial. And he did exactly that in a way that was very, very much against his own self-interest. He stood up for what was right. He showed courage. And here he is. It was immediately reported. Obviously, this was inaccurate. It was reported almost immediately after Ginsburg's death that a source close to Romney indicated that he would also balk at uh, choosing a Supreme Court justice before the election. But yesterday he announced, no, uh, he's in. He's at least in with the idea that he will vote based upon qualifications of someone who comes up before an election. So he has no major objection. He will not vote to stop someone from getting a vote before an election. So it appears as if uh, Trump and Mitch McConnell are going to have their votes. Now, obviously, it depends on how the process goes. I'm sure they're going to try to find something to sabotage the eventual nominee. It's going to be a woman. Uh, Most people seem to think it's going to be Amy Barrett. Uh, It's almost too obvious at this point that it would be Amy Barrett. Amy Barrett is a white female who is Catholic, who has seven kids, by the way, seven kids. She's very conservative. She's very religious. They're going to try to attack her on the religious basis. I'm sure that they're going to understand that that's not going to hack it, especially in election year where... Catholic voters are a swing voting group in key states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan, places like that. So uh, I don't think they're going to go after as much on religion. They'll try because of the abortion issue. If it is Barrett, uh, I'm sure they're going to try to find something that that paints her as a racist. Because then at least if they can't sabotage her or torpedo her nomination, they can at least make it work for them uh, politically in the upcoming election to try to further uh, gin up racial discord, uh, which we've obviously already seen a lot of this particular year. And then, of course, th- that doesn't mean there's going to be any reality to it. It doesn't you don't need any reality anymore. You just need one case where, you know, she ruled in a way that uh, made a black person upset. And voila, she's a racist. I mean, that's those are the new rules. So uh, that's the way I see that going. It is what, what I found fascinating at first about this politically was I didn't think they had enough time to do this before the election. And then after the election, there were, theoretically, they could have put in a new judge during a lame duck session. But I thought that would be very, very dangerous if you're Trump, because once you're, you've lost, assuming you lose the presidential election, you no longer have any leverage over anybody. You're powerless. 
uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, except for, for technical aspects of things, like, for instance, actually nominating somebody. But you have no leverage over any of the people who are doing the voting. And even though those people who are doing the voting will now no longer be subjected to the voters in the immediate aftermath of a nomination, because obviously we're at least two years away uh, from another election after this one, uh, it was my sense that if they waited till after the election and did it in a lame duck session, that that would cause its own problems as well as perception-wise, I think the American people would have a much more difficult time with that. Wait a minute. Hold on. We just elected Joe Biden as president, and we're going to instill Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee to a key spot. We're going to flip a liberal to a conservative after we just defeated him. I just don't think the American people would accept that. It would not be considered to be uh, legitimate. I I think it probably might be uh, considered legally legitimate if they got the votes. But for all intents and purposes, uh, that would be war. And Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, has already said absurdly that, uh, you know, that we're going to if this happens, we're going to all options are on the table. We're going to pack the court. Nancy Pelosi is is, uh, absurdly claiming that in order to stall this, uh, they might try to impeach Trump again. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, they've lost their minds. And, and, And look, the hypocrisy on this issue is stark and it's universal. We most people who follow this already know the the Gorsuch uh, Garland precedent, although I don't know that that's really a precedent for this situation. It feels like it is. The left thinks that it is to review back in early 2016. Antonin Scalia died. Obama was president. And Mitch McConnell said, nope, we're not filling the seat. We're not going to give Garland a a vote. Uh, You know, we're going to wait until after the election. And it feels like, to someone who doesn't look at this closely, that, wait a minute, hold on. Now we have a situation where a Supreme Court justice dies far later in the year, far closer to an election, and you're saying you want to fill it immediately. That feels like hypocrisy, right? Well, yes and no. And here's the difference. And, you know, a lot of this goes to the fact that the American people don't understand the system. They don't understand what they're voting for. Whether they realize it or not, American people voted for a Republican Senate. It is the Senate that decides on Supreme Court nominees. The president nominates, but then the Senate gets to do whatever the hell they want to do with that nomination. So effectively, when the American people voted for Barack Obama as president and then instilled a Republican majority in the Senate, whether they realized it or not, they were voting for a yellow signal at best on Supreme Court nominations. All right. That's a yellow signal when you have a president of one party, a Senate of the other. So the American people, again, they probably didn't fully realize this. Many of them probably had no idea whether they were doing this. But when you voted for a Republican Senate, You were creating a yellow light at best on Supreme Court nominations. When Trump won with a Republican Senate, and then that Republican Senate was actually augmented in the 2018 midterm elections, guess what? The American people were voting for a green light on Supreme Court nominations. Do you understand that? 
It's an important distinction. That was what the vote meant. Elections have consequences. So when you have a Republican Senate and a Republican president, that means they get to do pretty much whatever they want on Supreme Court nominations. Those are the rules. That's the way the cookie crumbles. And yeah, if you're on the left, Ginsburg dying at this time is a really, really bad break. Really bad break, at least from the standpoint of the court. What it means politically for the elections in November, I don't think anybody knows. I don't know. I, I think a lot of it's going to depend on how it goes down. Is the, is the nominee well-received? Is there a, a controversy that ends up gaining traction? Because you know they're going to do everything they possibly can to destroy this nominee. I mean, they're, I mean, I mean, what, what, what Kavanaugh faced is going to be probably peanuts in comparison to, to whatever this nominee is going to face if they can find anything at all, which is why, you know, from a political standpoint, I know this is not going to happen because he's not even on the list of 20 nominees that Trump has put out there publicly. And, and by the way, give Trump at least a little bit of credit. He's transparent about this. He's been very clear who his nominees are. Biden has not done this. Biden has not put out any list of who his nominees would be. But, you know, from a political standpoint, if my job, heaven forbid, was to see Trump and Republicans win in the elections, I would nominate Janice Rogers Brown who is a black female libertarian conservative judge. The problem with her is that she's 71 years old, and that's too old because Trump wants to remake the court for as long as he possibly can. And I think McConnell knows that the days of Republican majorities are probably over for quite a while, if not in perpetuity. And so this is last call. This is last call for a Supreme Court justice who is a conservative, and they want someone as young as possible, and Barrett is young. But if, but in a fantasy world, if Janice Rogers Brown was the nominee, it would be freaking hilarious to see Democrats go after her as the, the daughter of a sharecropper from the South who's a black female uh, who's highly qualified. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, whether it's going to be Barrett, I don't know either. I'm always hesitant to believe in the conventional wisdom, and it's you know it seems to be so overwhelming that she will be the pick. That makes me think maybe it won't be because of course Trump likes surprises, but it's going to be either Barrett or or some other woman who is very much uh, like her. And right now, barring a problem. I think they're probably going to be able to pull this off by the skin of their teeth. I think they're going to probably be able to get a Ginsburg replacement who is a conservative on the court before the election. Now, what's there's another interesting aspect of that. There's several interesting aspects of that. How does it impact the election politically? Again, we don't know. It's going to kind of depend on how it all goes down. But also we have this very strange quirk, and it's really a rare weakness in our system. I mean, our system as created by our founding fathers has been probably the best ever created by man from a structural standpoint. But there are some vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and this is one of them. Here we have a situation where we're headed for a potentially close election, an election that very well could be contested, where the sitting president has already said the only way he loses is if it's rigged, who's already done everything he possibly can to raise questions about the legitimacy of the vote, whether it's by mail-in or otherwise. And he gets to choose the person 
who could very well be the deciding vote in the Supreme Court should any of these issues end up being adjudicated there after the election. Wow, really? You cannot be serious! I mean, that's a flaw in the system, folks. That's, that is more of a monarchy than it is a, a democratic republic. Now, I don't know what the solution to it is. I, I, I mean, I mean there, there's no easy solution. Otherwise, I'm sure the founding fathers would have put one in there. But that's where we are. They probably, the founding fathers probably never imagined we would be this divided and that, can, and that a, a sitting president would, would be so willing before it even happens to question the legitimacy of an election. But that's where we currently are now. All things being equal, the most likely scenario is that Donald Trump will be able to instill a conservative justice to the Supreme Court who would be the deciding vote a deciding vote in his favor, in all likelihood, should he have any semblance of a case, if this ends up being anything close to like a 2000 election Bush v. Gore situation. That's a problem. That, that's a big problem. And, and I'm obviously as conflicted as anybody because I want to see Ginsburg replaced by a conservative. You know why I want to see Ginsburg replaced by a conservative? Because I think that we are headed for uh, a situation in this country, maybe not in the next couple of years, but it could be far sooner than I ever expected, where the Constitution is just going to be completely and totally ignored by several of our more progressive states. We've already seen it during the lockdown. The lockdown is a preview. But especially here in California, I truly believe we're headed towards a situation here in California where they're going to take away private property rights. I really, truly believe it. And as someone who owns two homes uh, in California, this is obviously of great interest to me and to my children. So if, in fact, Ginsburg is replaced by a conservative, there's at least a shot. Now, Clarence Thomas is going to pass away sometime soon. But that would at least leave five votes of rational people on the on the Supreme Court for hopefully, you know, the, assuming no uh, un, untimely deaths for at least 20 years, maybe longer than that. And so that's of great interest to me. On the other hand, I do have a big problem with the idea that Trump could very easily end up choosing the person who's going to determine whether or not he's reelected should we have a super close election. So all sorts of problems and issues and potential controversies related to this. Uh, Trump is expected to make his choice on Friday or Saturday, and obviously we will have uh, full coverage of that in next week's uh, podcast because it really is going to be a massive, massive story heading into this election. Uh, as far as what, how it's going to play out, look, it's going to absolutely energize the conservative base, but the conservative base was already energized. My inclination is that this may end up helping Biden because you know his base is not as as energized as Trump's, but this is going to create enormous anger on the left. Now, there was I never thought there was going to be any complacency on the left this time around after what happened in 2016 anyway. But this eliminates any chance of complacency on the left because right before an election, they're going to have to feel the sting. The left is the sting of having Ginsburg, their their heroine of the left, replaced by someone who is a conservative. And that is going to drive 
enormous turnout. Basically, turnout for this election is going to be at least 102 percent. I mean, that's where we're headed for this. And, And using a system that we've never really used before with regard to, you know, Everyone having a different standard and uh, whether you have in-person voting and uh, mail-in voting and, and what have you. It, it, I mean, the, the potential for chaos here is extraordinary and, uh, and getting greater almost by the day. So that's the, the Ginsburg situation. Now, if there is a strength to this podcast, and hopefully there is, and you must think that there is if you're listening to this, because obviously you are, it is that uh, we have been really good really good at judging the character of those who have been instrumental in stories involving Donald Trump, including Donald Trump himself. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? That's what we do best on this podcast. We tell you who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And we even tell you why the people uh, either are on the good side or the bad side and explain why they might be in the middle. And I would say that our track record on this is rather extraordinary, even when we go against the conventional wisdom. And one of the best examples of that is the fact that we, way before anybody else, told you that liberals and those who despise Donald Trump should not be putting all of their faith in Robert Mueller as the special counsel in the Russia investigation into meddling in the 2016 election. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. We were way ahead of the curve on this. Way ahead of the curve. I told you that Mueller was going to wimp out. I told you it was because he's an old white male who's lost his balls and who is afraid of Trump and who doesn't want the last chapter of his career to be bringing down a president on on anything uh, close to uh, imperfect evidence and that he was going to be played by Trump because he's way too naive. He's by the book, and he's you know it's basically uh, you know a, 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 it basically it's kind of like the Revolutionary War, where you have uh, the the British uh, military, which is you know Robert Mueller, going against the, the the revolutionaries here who weren't playing by the rules and were hiding in the trees, and you know weren't doing things by the normal. Uh, circumstances that uh, that dictated war at the time. So, uh, and and Mueller got played. And Mueller let Trump off the hook. And I wrote at the time that Mueller was effectively Trump's best friend, even though the left for well over a year, basically two years, kept saying, just wait for Mueller, wait for Mueller. He's Superman. He's Superman. He's going to do it all for us. And I kept telling him, nope, 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 nope. Do not put your faith in Robert Mueller. And then as the report came out and Bill Barr, who we told you was a bad guy and we predicted way before everybody else did that he had lied about the nature of the Mueller report and where we were totally vindicated on that. I was telling you that this was a situation where Mueller had wimped out and then he had his horrible, horrendous testimony where he basically crapped the bed. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Well, The reason I'm mentioning all this is not just because recently the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is run by Republicans, came out with a a major report effectively vindicating uh, a lot of what people like me said about the Mueller report, which is, oh, by the way, Trump committed crimes, specifically obstruction of justice. This is approved by the Republican Senate Intelligence Committee. But there's now a new book. 
There's a new book by a, a, a Mueller deputy by the name of Andrew Weissman. Top deputy to uh, Robert Mueller wrote the book Where Law Ends. And this is an Atlantic. I don't like the Atlantic. I've explained that before. So you can determine for yourself the credibility of this. And I'll fully acknowledge that I'm giving it credibility because I agree with it. But it also makes sense. Uh, But with that said, this is from the Atlantic. uh, I guess it was two days ago of writing about Weissman's new book. And uh, listen to how this is going to sound awfully familiar to you folks, because I told you all about this uh, a year and a half ago, at least, if not longer than that, on both Bill Barr and Robert Mueller. The Atlantic writes, by abdicating the role of prosecutor, Mueller cleared the way for Bill Barr to take it on himself. Mueller and Barr were old friends. Several weeks before submitting the report, Weissman writes, Mueller informed Barr of his intent to omit any legal recommendation. Barr didn't object. Without telling Mueller, he saw a chance to disfigure the report into an exoneration of the president and thereby make its damning truths disappear. Barr, Weissman writes, quote, had betrayed both friend and country, unquote. And Mueller... He was incapable of navigating the world remade by Trump. He conducted himself with scrupulous integrity and allowed his team to be intimidated by people who had no scruples at all. His deep aversion to publicity silenced him when the public badly needed clarity about the special counsel's dense, ambiguous, at times unreadable report. His sense of fairness surrendered the facts of presidential criminality to an administration that was at war with facts. He trusted his friend Barr to play it straight, not realizing that Barr had gone crooked. He left the job of holding the president accountable to a Congress that had shown itself to be Trump's willing accomplice. He wanted, above all, to warn the American people about foreign subversion in our democracy while the greater subversion gathered force here at home. Apparently this book, which I've not read, but I've read excerpts of it and reporting on it, effectively says, look, Mueller was a good guy. He tried to do the right thing. He just was not up to this task. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. That he was too old. He was too naive. He was too by the book. He got played by Barr and he got played by Trump. Who you remember, remember when Donald Trump, and this was so, I think, uh, such a smoking gun moment. It's amazing that so many of the smoking gun moments in the whole Russian investigation, the vast majority of the American people don't even know about. But according to the Mueller report, when Trump finds out that Robert Mueller is the person who's going to be the special counsel, Trump says, I'm fucked. Correct. I'm fucked. That's what he said. Now, why the hell would you say that if you're innocent? I mean, Robert Mueller is a Republican who has a reputation of extraordinary integrity. If if you're innocent, that's who you want. You couldn't ask for someone better than that. And, and I said for an exceedingly long time, and I turned out to be right, that Trump should be thrilled that Mueller was the special counsel. Not just because he's a Republican, because you know, but because the liberals were elevating Mueller to Superman status. 
I mean, this couldn't have worked out better for Donald Trump. Liberals were so freaking stupid here. So, so you elevate Mueller to Superman status, even though he's a, you know, a Republican and, you know, goes by the book and he's dealing in a situation where he is ill-suited to take on this pirate, this, this criminal in Donald Trump. And he's too old, too wimpy. He lost his balls, all that. And it's a perfect storm to where they have Trump. They have him, but they won't do anything about it, partially because Mueller didn't just get played by Trump, who he didn't force to testify. He didn't subpoena. He didn't say he obstructed justice. He left it to Bill Barr, thinking that Bill Barr was on the side of justice when Bill Barr was actually on the side of Donald Trump. Correct. So Trump was wrong when he said, I'm fucked. He should have been dancing in the streets, should have been having a party because he could not have chosen anyone better than Robert Mueller to be the person who was the special counsel into the Russian investigation. Now, to be clear, whether there was, quote unquote, collusion or not, I don't know. The Weissman book apparently makes the argument that they got really close to proving collusion, that there were a couple of things that that didn't go their way. Otherwise, they could have proven it through Paul Manafort and and his contacts with Russian uh, officials, agents, intelligence officers, what have you, whatever you want to call them, uh, with regard to providing them with uh, election information. I do find it more than coincidental, more than coincidental that Paul Manafort hands over to Russia polling data with their strategy of the four key states. The four key states, the three of them being Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, those are the states that ends up, end up winning the election for Donald Trump in 2016. And those are the states Russia focuses most of their attention on regarding their online campaign. That's a hell of a coincidence. Correct. And when you consider the Roger Stone evidence, uh, and of course, you know, Roger Stone has had his sentence commuted by Donald Trump. So he's very vulnerable. He obviously thinks he's very vulnerable there. He's protecting Roger Stone. I still believe that depending on your definition, a decent argument could be made for collusion. But I'll tell you what there's no ambiguity about. He absolutely obstructed justice. He absolutely perjured himself in his answers to Robert Mueller without any question whatsoever. So most specifically regarding the issue of the, the Russian uh, tower, Moscow Tower, that Trump wanted to build at least until June of 2016. I still believe that he, he and his lawyers suborned the perjury of Michael Cohen regarding that project, which Cohen was in charge of, and he lied to Congress about it. There were all sorts of crimes. He should have been impeached. He should have been impeached for obstruction of justice and perjury. And he was not because Mueller shit the bed. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. And I told you that that was going to happen. I told you exactly why that was going to happen. And that view has been completely vindicated by a book by one of his top deputies, Andrew Weissman. Now, I've also told you that Dr. Anthony Fauci is not to be trusted. And I told you this very early on when he was being hailed as a hero, as a god, uh, the, the, the greatest uh, medical expert of his kind that America has. 
And uh, I immediately had an aversion to this guy, much like Trump, where it was clear this guy loves attention. He loves the media hailing him as an expert. He's in love with his own celebrity. And that is very, very dangerous in a situation like we have right now, because when that's the case, you become invested in a series of narratives that are not true because they fulfill your own self-interest. If you care more about your own image than the truth, that's a very dangerous situation. And interestingly, it's not quite the the credibility of, of a Weissman, but there's a similar situation that the media has ignored involving Fauci and someone who works, or at least did, work for him. This is a really bizarre story. This is really bizarre. And part of the reason why this is bizarre is because Donald Trump is president and people get administration jobs who probably aren't qualified, don't really deserve them. Uh, and, you know, in another administration that would never happen. And that's the, the prism through which the media is seeing this story, because otherwise this would be a big deal. But here's the story I'm referring to. This is really odd. A harsh critic of the federal government's response to the coronavirus has been revealed to work as a public affairs specialist for the government health agency headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci. William Cruz, who has been editing and writing for the conservative site Red State, with which I am very familiar, the conservative website Red State, under the synonym of Sharif, or I think that's how you say it, Shref, or whatever, has railed against his colleagues at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, accusing them of being part of an anti-Trump conspiracy. He has also called Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert and the director of NIAID, quote, attention-grabbing and media-whoring, unquote. Cruz has also slammed public health officials at other federal agencies for their roles in imposing economic restrictions to slow the spread of the virus, which he argued had no basis in science and were part of an effort by the left to destroy the economy and hurt President Trump's re-election chances. Quote, I think we're at the point where it is safe to say that the entire Wuhan virus scare was nothing more or less than a massive fraud perpetrated upon the American people by quote-unquote experts who were determined to fundamentally change the way the country lives and is organized and governed, unquote, Cruz wrote in a June post on Red State. The, uh, the NIAID said in a written statement that Cruz will now retire Adding, quote, we have no further comments on this as it is a personnel matter. Now, I don't know Cruz. I have made some inquiries because certainly I'm sure we've, <laughs> we've probably existed in some, some similar uh, social uh, groups because the, the right-wing conspiracy is a very small one, and I used to be part of it before the whole Trump thing happened. But I, I do know some people uh, at Red State. I have tried to get more information on Cruz. I have been largely unsuccessful. I have been told by someone uh, who would have some knowledge of this that he is perceived as a nut job. Now, <laughs> I, I can understand that. And a lot of people perceive me as a nut job. And I don't agree with everything that Cruz 
apparently wrote here at Red State, I don't believe that the coronavirus was a conspiracy to destroy Trump at all. I don't believe that at all. I believe that people saw the coronavirus and still do to this day through the prism of Trump being president and that that played a critical role. It wasn't overtly in their minds, oh, this is the way we're going to destroy Donald Trump. No, because they don't trust Trump, which is understandable, and they think that he's a moron, which he is many times, it was presumed he must be wrong and lying about the virus, and therefore this must be worse than we think, than we're being told. Obviously, we're not going to handle this properly. We need to trust somebody other than Donald Trump. That's why Fauci became so popular, because it was perceived that Fauci was the only thing holding us together because we had this incompetent uh, pathological liar who doesn't believe in science as president of the United States. And so once people become invested in that narrative, it impacts everything that they do. Now, there are many people, I think, and I see this online all the time, who overtly, overtly are motivated in their coronavirus view by the fact that they hate Donald Trump. I mean, that's just obvious. Correct. Uh, and, and it's human. I guess it's just human nature. I have tried exceedingly hard to not let that happen. I mean, I, I was as, and still am to a large degree as anti-Trump as any conservative could possibly be. Uh, but I have not let it impact my view of our reaction to the coronavirus. Because I care about the truth. I care about the future of my country, the future of my children, and the future of the world. And I think we're doing some things that are going to be incredibly, devastatingly, catastrophically detrimental to all that that are unnecessary. And a large part of that is because of Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, I believe, is now deeply emotionally, personally invested in a narrative that is false. And that narrative is that the lockdowns saved millions of lives. It's the only thing holding us together to this day. And uh, we are, uh, you know, we have to keep uh, being locked down. Even after we get a vaccine, we still have to be locked down because somehow flatten the curve for a few weeks turned into we do nothing for free. We're, not, we're no longer free people until we have completely eradicated the virus in its totality, which, of course, is impossible. You cannot be serious. I mean, that that right there is the essence of the true scandal in all this. That flattened the curve somehow turned into we shut down virtually everything. We give up all our, not all, but most many of our freedoms. We can't live a free life until the virus is eradicated. We, we don't eradicate. It's impossible. It's literally impossible. We, that's why we still have a flu vaccine every year, and tens of thousands of people die of the flu every year. It is, it, that is the most astonishing thing in all of this that has happened, that we got from flatten the curve to life can never be normal again until this, this virus is eradicated. And the reason for that is because Fauci and others like him became completely invested that they didn't blow this at the beginning. And the biggest element of this that they are t 
totally invested in is the idea that the lockdown was necessary because if we let the virus do what viruses do, then there would be devastating medical impact to that, that we would have millions of deaths. And presumably within those millions of deaths, they would not just be people who were elderly and already very sick. Doesn't mean elderly and very sick people don't matter. It's just the realities, unfortunately, of life. Death is part of life. And the the idea that somehow uh, that when someone dies at 80 and is already sick with numerous underlying conditions, that that death is the same thing as a war death, for instance, of a 23-year-old healthy person is absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. It is an absurdity. And yet it is not the foundation of so much of the reaction to all this. Oh, all deaths matter. No, they're, they're not all the same, folks. And, we, and we, we've always known this. It's, it's, it's why, you know, when Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter accident uh, with, with eight other people, all of whom are young, including young girls, that's a massive tragedy. Massive tragedy. Why? Because they were all young and healthy and then had lives in front of them. Yet when very famous people die in their 80s, we don't even give the cause of death. And it's a you know, one-hour story because that's the way life works. So it doesn't, doesn't make it good. It's not something you want, but it's, it's not something you destroy Western civilization over in a foolhardy attempt to try to prevent when you can't prevent it. And that's really the heart of this. People like Fauci want to believe they have some semblance of control. That if we just behaved properly, if we just listened to everything they said, that somehow the virus would be completely under control. We would have no life whatsoever, but the virus would be completely under control. And there is no part of this narrative, none. There is no part of this narrative that they are more invested in than the idea that they didn't miscalculate what would have happened if we had just allowed, with some precautions, the virus to run its course, like effectively Sweden did. They are completely invested in the idea that that's not possible, that that if we relied on herd immunity, that 65 to 70 percent of the population would need to get the virus. And if that happens based upon the death rate, you're talking about millions of deaths. It would be catastrophic. We couldn't possibly endure that. And we must avoid that at all costs. Now, if that's true, okay, fine. And we trusted in them. They were the experts. We were told, if you don't have the proper medical degree, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this. Literally, we were told that. And I was one of those that accepted, okay, that must be the that must be true. These people must know what the hell they're talking about. Isn't it interesting that Sweden doesn't buy into that? Swedes are pretty smart people. I'm very interested in what's happening with Sweden. I've said that right from the beginning of all this. Going to be interesting to see how that all turns out. And of course, At the beginning, it looked like Sweden was a disaster, largely because they did a lousy job of protecting their nursing homes. But something amazing has happened in the last two months. No one is dying in Sweden. Nobody, literally nobody for two months is dying in Sweden. And yet they're living a near normal life. No masks at all. Near normal life. And I have been saying time and time again, somebody 
please explain to me. Somebody explain to me how this makes any sense. And I can't tell you how many times on Twitter and elsewhere, when you bring up Sweden, people are still pretending it's April or May. Oh, they're a disaster. No, no, no. Have you looked at what's happened in the last two months? It's not what's happened in the past. It's where they are now. It's where they are now. And that even with mistakes, their death rate is now lower than the United States of America and lower per capita than many other countries. And nobody is dying there. And again, they're living far more normally than anybody else is in the hot spots in America. And one of the things that bothers me most about masks is that I believe that masks are now going to literally be the cover-up for fooling people and pretending that herd immunity is not taking over in places of the country that are no longer riddled with lots of virus and deaths, like, for instance, New York and New Jersey and the surrounding area, which got hit by far the hardest at the beginning and therefore would have the greatest, most logical claim to herd immunity. On Monday, I went on Glenn Beck's show, obviously very well-known national uh, syndicated talk show host. Uh, John Ziegler. I, I think he's fantastic. What a, what a interesting mind he has. And I predicted on that show what was going to happen. I said, this will be the narrative by Fauci and the others that it is masks that are holding us together as the virus fades, that it is masks, that magical mask usage in New York and New Jersey is just so much better, that they're just so much better at following the rules in New York, New Jersey than anywhere else in the country. My gosh, in Los Angeles, those conservatives in Los Angeles, they're just not paying any attention. That's that. They're just, the, are you kidding me? You, are, are you Really? You cannot be serious. I mean, in Los Angeles, they've masked up as much as they possibly can mask up. California is as locked down as it could possibly be. And the data shows, guess what? The virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. And the reason why it's still here is because we didn't have it at the beginning to the extent that New York and New Jersey did. That's why we haven't had nearly the deaths. I believe the data is showing that we're close, not quite there yet. Where I live, we might be very close. We are close to this thing fading away in California. But it's not because of masks. It's because of some level of herd immunity. So I believe that this is going to be the narrative that we're going to pretend because the media is on our side. And if all the ex- if all the quote unquote experts stick together, they can't be proven wrong, right? Because if they all stick together, anyone who disagrees with them is a crackpot. This is the inherent advantage that they have. I mean, hell, when YouTube and Twitter and Facebook don't even allow doctors who disagree to voice an opinion and they get their videos taken down and no one will have them on television other than maybe Fox News from time to time, they get a stranglehold on the narrative. Because anyone who disagrees is a crackpot. No, no, no. It's the masks that are holding us together. Now, what I really love to know is why would New York and New Jersey be so much better at mask wearing than, for instance, Los Angeles 
or other places that are also very liberal uh, around the country that are still dealing with this in a far greater way. Yesterday, New York and New Jersey, on what is normally one of the worst days of the week, if not the worst day of the week, New York and New Jersey combined, 28 million people plus, combined had a total of seven deaths. Seven deaths with or of coronavirus yesterday, New York and New Jersey. So something's going on. It seems awfully similar to Sweden. But Dr. Fauci can't possibly have that be the narrative because, let's be clear, let us be very, very clear. If, in fact, Sweden has hit herd immunity and New York has hit herd immunity, then he and others like him made the most catastrophic mistake in the history of modern science. And it's not even close. Correct. That's the reality of it. So he is as deeply invested against this idea as any human could possibly be. And we already know because he's an attention whore that he cares more about his image than he cares about the truth. We also know he's been wrong constantly throughout all of this. He's the guy who told us we started we should start wearing goggles, for God's sake. He's the guy who, who got famous for his, his reaction to AIDS when he said AIDS could be transferred through casual contact, including toilets use. You cannot be serious. And this is this is this is our great expert. This is our great God. This is the guy running all of our lives. He's been wrong about everything. And he's now deeply invested against this idea. And so today he testified to the United States Senate and Rand Paul, a doctor who's had coronavirus. And I think it's one of the great tragedies of this whole thing that because Rand Paul sold his soul to Donald Trump, he has no credibility when it comes to any of all this kind of thing. Correct. Uh, uh, Rand Paul, in a rational world, without Donald Trump as president, without him having sold his soul to Trump, would be considered highly credible here. We got a doctor who's had the coronavirus, who's a libertarian from Kentucky, and he's been taking on uh, Dr. Fauci constantly, and he did so today on this issue of herd immunity. Because really, folks, this isn't that complicated. And it's kind of fascinating. What is your explanation for Sweden and New York effectively being done with the virus at exactly the same time? Please look at the charts. They start on almost exactly the same day. They hit their peak at almost exactly the same day. They start to decline at almost exactly the same day. They go to all near zero deaths at almost exactly the same day. To the day. And of course, New York, even when you account for per capita, has far, far more deaths. Far, far more deaths, especially New York City, than Sweden does. And yet, New York is still basically totally locked down, completely masked up, while Sweden, no masks and life near normal. How do you possibly explain that? Now, the Oxum's razor explanation is, well, they've hit herd immunity, that human beings have almost no power over this, that the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do, and they were hit at the same time in the same way and now the virus is effectively done. That's the simplest explanation. That's the one that explains everything. Is that going to be the one Fauci 
embraces? Oh, no, 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 no. Because that's career death for him. That is career death for him. That is humiliation for all time. So that's not even within the possibility of being true. That's not, that's not something he's even going to fully or even partially contemplate. Instead, he's come up with this convoluted uh, argument that I've heard elsewhere from supposedly smart people that somehow New York just did a better job of following the rules, even though they lost all those people at the beginning, by far the most deaths, by every possible standard per capita, by numbers, New Jersey, the same thing. I mean, it is absolutely insane that he continues to praise New York while condemn Sweden when by every possible measure, New York did far worse than Sweden, is living far more locked down than Sweden is right now, and yet they're probably in exactly the same spot with regard to herd immunity. So here's what it sounded like when Rand Paul confronted Dr. Fauci and uh, Fauci's response was exactly as I predicted on the Glenn Beck show, that this is what they're going to do. They're going to get they've been caught with their pants down. So they're going to use masks to cover up what we see. And they're going to pretend this is the emperor has no clothes, folks. Remember, we were all told that story you know, for a reason. Most of us have forgotten it, apparently. But this is the emperor has no clothes. He's telling us a bullshit story, but the media is going to cover for him. The establishment's going to cover for him. And the American people don't have enough information to realize that it's obviously logical bullshit. But here's what that sounded like today in the U.S. Senate. You've been a big fan of Cuomo and the shutdown in New York. You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How yeah. could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great no. job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator, and you've done that repetitively in the past. They got hit very badly. They've made some mistakes. Right now, if you look at what's going on right now, the things that are going on in New York to get there test positivity 1% or less is because they are looking at the guidelines that we have put together from the task force of the four or five things of masks, social distancing, outdoors more than indoors, avoiding crowds, and washing hands. Or they've developed enough community immunity right. that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that. Uh, Senator, I'm afraid, because I'm afraid I, I want, please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said that in New York it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. All right, now that response there by Fauci, which was rather defensive, is very telling. He threw out the number of 22%. Now remember, the experts told us you got to hit 65% to get some semblance of herd immunity, right? And, and so his, his basic argument there is, look, uh, you're alone, dude. As long as all of us experts stick together, we can't, we're invulnerable to this because then we can make you the crackpot. You're the only one that believes what you believe. By the way, throughout the history of the world, there have been constantly, constantly situations where Somebody stood up against the conventional wisdom and said, you're wrong, and they turned out to be right. V many, many famous situations. We still see it to this day. 
and uh, in all sorts of different human endeavors. There's a reason why the conventional wisdom is often wrong. It's because of groupthink and because of personal investment. And nobody could possibly be more personally invested in herd immunity not hitting at a lower threshold than what we were told than Dr. Fauci. As far as the 22% number, I don't know where he's getting that from. Uh, nobody seems to believe that that's where you hit herd immunity, although that's close to where it might start to kick in. Also, the idea that, uh, you know, you have 20 percent. Now, the, this gets complicated. I don't want to get into, you know, the bog down into the details here. But as far as antibody tests are concerned, I guess he's talking about that number, that the antibody tests are in that range in New York's in New York City. But that's not the same thing as the threshold for herd immunity. And there are many people who believe that, yes, right around 20 to 30 percent is when it starts to kick in. But but here's the bottom line on this. Here's the bottom line. What's the more logical explanation? What's the more logical explanation that somehow New York and New Jersey just happen to be doing this so much better than anywhere else that all of a sudden the virus has no real impact there. And yet their data is exactly the same as a place called Sweden where they're doing none of those things. They're doing none of those things. And by the way, Sweden's data is actually better than New York and New Jersey's by small margins because you're dealing with incredibly small numbers. But it doesn't make any logical sense what Fauci is saying and what he's trying to sell. It fits his self-interest because he's invested. He's in a bubble, a thought bubble of groupthink where everyone is invested. And they all know, as he said there at the end, is if they stick together and no one breaks from the herd, to use a ironic metaphor, if no one breaks from the herd on this anti-herd immunity crusade, then they're okay. As long as the media is lockstep, and there's been a couple of security breaches. The LA Times had a security breach yesterday asking about whether or not Sweden has hit herd immunity. The New York Times has done an article a few weeks ago about what if we can reach herd immunity at a much lower threshold than we were told. So there's been a couple of security breaches. But by and large, they, large they've been able to hold everything together. And I think they will continue to be able to hold everything together because of personal investment. And Sweden is out there going, hello, hello, um, did you forget about us? Again, it's not. And Rand Paul doesn't do that great a job in this argument. He, he's not using his best argument. His best argument is explain Sweden today. Explain it today. And Fauci, you know, we don't have the clip here, but Fauci did attack Sweden once again, not based upon where they are today, but on their death rate in comparison to their neighbors, which is a ridiculous comparison. Compare New York's death rate to their neighbors, for God's sake. The, 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 I mean, that's one of the many problems and I said this from the beginning, that you're able to cherry pick the, the horrendous garbage data uh, in any way possible that you want to achieve your goals and your agenda here. And that's what Fauci is doing. The reality is 
I don't care. Well, it's terrible for the 86 years olds, and that's what their average age of death was in Sweden because they did a lousy job of protecting their nursing homes at the beginning. That's terrible that those 86 year olds died like a, a month or two before they normally would have, in, in all likelihood, statistically. That's te- that's terrible. It's, it's a shame. And, and but you know they've had less than 6,000 uh, COVID of or with deaths in Sweden, but they've had n- almost none of them in the last two months with almost no major restrictions and certainly no mask wearing. So what's the explanation for the massive disparity? The most logical, simplest explanation is that humans and government has very little influence over what the virus does and that we are hindering ourselves from getting the hell out of this because experts don't want to admit they were wrong about the threshold on herd immunity. That is the most logical way to look at this right now. Now, if if next week Sweden starts to fall apart, which I don't anticipate, but if they do, then guess what? I will change my position on that. Because when I, unlike Dr. Fauci, because I'm not a quote-unquote expert, which means I'm not invested in anything. I'm not invested in my perception of an, as, as an expert. When I get new information, I change my mind all the time. That's what a science person is supposed to do. A scientist, when you get new information, you remain open-minded and you evolve your thinking based upon new info. Does Dr. Fauci sound like someone who's willing to do that? Absolutely fucking not. He is deeply invested in that threshold for herd immunity not being much lower than what he thought and what he said. Deeply invested. And, you know, it's, you know he, he changed his mind on, on masks, but he changed his mind on masks because of the politics. Of the politics. Not because uh, the science on masks changed or we suddenly saw that a place to put on a mask mandate had cases and hospitalizations and deaths suddenly go down. That's the reality of this. This is a guy, this is, and this is why I go back to what I said at the beginning. This is why being an attention whore and a media whore is the worst possible thing you can have for someone in this position because he cares too much about his image and his image is tied to the idea that he's infallible and he's not infallible. He's been wrong all the time and he won't look at reality because it doesn't fit his self-interest and it's destroying the country and the world in all likelihood. So... That, that situation with Fauci, I realize I spent a lot of time with it, but it's really important because it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact where this country goes. Because Fauci is going to be the expert for sure if Biden wins. And, and I've said a million times, Trump's presidency, if it ends in November, which I think it will, although it might not, but I think it will, when history is written properly, he lost his presidency because he handed it over to Anthony Fauci. Correct. That's what happened. He handed his presidency over to Anthony Fauci. And uh, Fauci does not have the self-interest or the truth as his primary goals. He does not have the self-interest of the country. He has the self-interest of himself as his primary goal. And, you know, of course, the media is totally in the tank on this in every possible way. And and Joe Biden is not being held accountable for his completely out of... uh, all semblance of reality view 
of where we are in the virus and no miracles are coming. I'll shut us down if the scientists tell us uh, that I should, which, of course, he will, because that's what they're going to do, because we just heard where Fauci's view is on this. And he did a CNN town hall last week, which I told you was going to be a softball fest in comparison to the, you know what ABC did for Donald Trump. I was 100 percent right about that. But here was one particular moment in that CNN uh, town hall, really a, a Biden campaign rally where Biden goes off the rails, goes off the rails. And this doesn't even sound like a situation where he he makes a, a verbal gaffe where he does say it at one point, And this is not in the clip that, uh, you know, 200 million Americans died when it's actually 200,000. OK, that's a mistake people make. I make those kind of mistakes all the time. Biden seems to make them more often than most, largely because of his age. But that's not what happens here. This is Biden emphatically blaming Trump, not just for some of the deaths, but for all of the deaths. If the president had done his job, had done his job from the beginning, all the people would still be alive. All the people, I'm not making this up, just look at the data. Look at the data. What the fuck is he talking about? What the fuck is he talking? I mean, I'm actually very concerned that he really believes that. There's a guy who somehow believes that government could have possibly stopped all of this. And it's not just making an, an, an irrational charge against your political opponent, but it's, it's more problematic to me that that indicates Biden's view of the virus, that he thinks we just didn't push the right governmental buttons. By the way, he was against a lot of those governmental buttons back when it mattered in February and March. But it's just absolutely absurd. It's ludicrous. It's not true. I, I don't know how many uh, more or less people would have, quote unquote, died with or of the coronavirus if Trump had been president. But it, I don't believe that the number would have been that much different. I really don't. I, I, I think in the end of this, this is mostly going to come down to population density, population obesity, population age, uh, you know, luck, immunity. You can delay it to a certain degree. But the and I, and I do believe that, you know, social distancing works to a certain degree, at least in delaying. But I don't believe masks. There's any evidence that mask mandates work. The, the reality is, though, that you, if you think somehow that this magic 200,000 number, which no one's going to know for sure what the actual number is. I, you know, people ask me all the time, how many people do you think, John, actually died in, in this country of coronavirus? Based upon the average age and the comorbidity issue, I would say that at least 40 percent of that number are not legitimate COVID deaths. But that's still a big number. That's still well over 100,000, maybe 100. 20,000, something in that range. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. It's a very, very bad flu uh, without a vaccine. That's basically what we're looking at here. That's terrible. It's unfortunate. It's real. But you don't destroy Western civilization over it when destroying Western civilization is not going to lead to any real net benefit. In fact, I, w- I think right now the lockdown probably is going to end up costing more and younger and healthier lives than it's going to save. It's going to be a long time before we know that, but that's my current inclination on that. But Biden's statement was not just false. It was very disturbing as far as his view of the virus and what would happen with regard to the government response to it uh, should he become president. As far as whether or not he's going to be president, uh, the developments there. Cindy McCain endorsed him on all the major networks this morning, which I found to be bizarre 
that Cindy McCain, the, the wife of John McCain, former uh, Republican presidential nominee in 2008, a guy who I had, had a, an awful lot of respect and, and really revered and was a delegate for at the Republican convention in 2008. So I really love John McCain. I've met Cindy. I mean, I think she follows me on Facebook. Uh, she's, she's perfectly a, a nice woman. I have no problem against her. I, I believe that she uh, believes that Joe Biden is a good man and would be a better president, and she might be right about that. Uh, but what was bizarre to me about it was that she got two bites of the apple here. She already endorsed Joe Biden at the Democratic convention. She voiced a, a video about her husband and, and Joe Biden's relationship. At the convention, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. But uh, you know, I guess kudos to the Democrats for being able to manipulate the media that's obviously on their side into letting Cindy McCain go on three different network television shows this morning to do something that she had already done. It's not news. We already know Cindy McCain was endorsing Joe Biden. Again, I I trust her judgment that Joe Biden is a good man. Whether Joe Biden is still that man or not, and whether or not he can fend off those controlling him, I have my doubts. Uh, as far as the polling is concerned, uh, some interesting things are going on there. We've had uh, four straight polls involving Trump's approval rating that were pretty good for him in the last uh, few days. At least 45% approval for Donald Trump. Now, it is my view that 47% approval is the magic number for Donald Trump. If he gets his approval rating among legitimate polls, to 47%, he's got a probably a pretty close to 50-50 shot of making this happen. He's not there yet. He's probably, at best, in the 45% approval range. So I don't think he can win at 45% approval. At 47% approval, I think he could, if the brakes went his way, he could win. Now, Biden leads the head-to-head, and it's not the Electoral College, but the, he leads the head-to-head polling by a little less than seven points. That's getting close to the danger zone if you're rooting for Joe Biden here. Basically, I think we are about a 2% shift from Biden to Trump to there being a large Electoral College victory for Biden turning into a toss-up. In other words, if the election were today, Biden would win the Electoral College by a fairly significant and maybe even a runaway margin. But if the national popular vote, along with Trump's approval rating, shifts 2% in his favor, now we got a toss-up. That's where I think we are right now. We're 2% away nationwide from Biden going from a large Electoral College victory to this going right down to the, to the end in a razor- small, sharp margin for victory for whoever turned out being the winner. There were three Florida polls that came out late yesterday, and Florida really is everything for Trump. Trump can't even get out of the batter's box if he doesn't win Florida, and he's been losing Florida. Well, these three polls gave Trump some hope. In two of them, Biden was winning by three points. In the ABC Washington Post poll, which is usually bad for Trump, Trump was beating Biden by over four points. That was significant, if real, especially given all the horrendous publicity that Trump has been enduring with the Woodward book and the Atlantic article and all that. In this environment, if Trump really is leading an ABC Washington Post poll by four points in Florida, hold on to your hats. 
Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It needs more verification. But basically, Florida is a toss-up. Here's the Trump path right now. And this path uh, is really Trump's only path. I, I think right now Wisconsin and Michigan are close to off the table for Trump. But he still has one path. The path is you got to win Florida. you got to win Arizona. you got to win North Carolina. And you got to win Pennsylvania. Those four states. And then you got to hold on to everything else. No upsets anywhere else, like in Iowa or something like that. So if, if Trump wins those four states that he won in 2016, if he wins Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, he would win the Electoral College by the skin of his teeth. And if he won those states, he would probably win them by very small margins. And that is the scenario for total chaos, folks. If that ends up happening, where Trump pulls an inside straight, holds on to Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, all by small margins, wins the Electoral College by only a couple of votes, look out. Look out. That in the middle of a, of a pandemic and a brand new Supreme Court justice and racial divisions, Oh, my God. That's the scenario where we uh, are in really potentially big, big trouble. We're better than that. I don't know. That, I mean, it's, I, I'm, so I'm not predicting that scenario right now, but that scenario is very much in play. But let's be clear. Trump's path is very narrow. He has no margin for error. He must win Florida. He must win Arizona. He must win North Carolina. And he must win Pennsylvania. Individually, all four of those are very much in play. He's a slight underdog in probably all four, but it's a very slight underdog. So that path is possible, but there's no margin for error. If he pulls it off, wow, look out. Chances of that happening at this point, I think, are probably around 20%. So I'm going to nudge up Trump's chances of uh, pulling this off just slightly from 15 to 20 percent. One last uh, note. Uh, This has nothing really to do with uh, Trump, although indirectly, I guess it does because it deals with the country of Iran. Uh, I want to urge you to go see if if you live in a place where movie theaters are open in the United States. I urge you to go see the movie Infidel. It opened uh, very strongly at the box office last weekend in about uh, 2,400 different theaters. It's done by a friend of mine by the name of Cyrus Narasta. It stars Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel is the actor most famous for playing Jesus in the Mel Gibson film. It's very good, and I'm not just personally tied to this because Cyrus is a very, very good friend of mine. In fact, I did my first documentary film about Cyrus and a film he did about 9-11 that got censored by ABC Disney. But I'm actually in the film. You won't be able to see me. You'll hear my voice for about two or three lines uh, if you do actually go see Infidel in theaters. But I highly recommend it. I probably had more of an influence over the editing of the film than I did in appearing in it. But you won't be disappointed. So if you're in one of those places lucky enough to have theaters, go see Infidel this weekend, and I promise uh, you will thank me for it. Uh, That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Please remember, as always, to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.